Thank you for listening to the Redeemer podcast. Redeemer exists to make the gospel of Jesus known in our city, region, and world. Subscribe to the Redeemer podcast to not only access our weekly sermons, but also select special talks and lectures by myself and our guest speakers. If you want to know more about Redeemer and how you can be a part of what God is doing through our church, go to www.redeemerbible.ca. Thank you, and we hope that you are blessed by what you're about to hear. So let me read Nahum chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off, her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose water, waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end to the treasure or, the wealth, or of the wealth of all the precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were, with none to disturb? The lions tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. That's pretty dark, isn't it? And this it's it's let's let's start with some history so we understand it because there's a there's a few scholars that when you read about this passage they say literally um, if you have any hopes of seeing anything here but history abandon that hope because it's just description it's just telling the story of the fall of Nineveh. I wouldn't go that far. I think they're incorrect when they say that. there's much more to it than just facts about what happened to Nineveh historically. But let's start with a bit of history. Near the end of the 7th century BC, Assyria's power starts to wane. Here's one of the great uh, paradoxes of, of power in the ancient world. As Assyria gets powerful, that means their citizens become powerful and gain wealth. But within the citizenry of Assyria, you have factions that don't like the Assyrians. And so what happens is in the midst of their growth, the growth of Babylon and the Medes are also growing. And so what ends up happening is from the south come the Babylonians, and from the east come the Medes. And they eventually converge, and they, may, they join forces in 612 BC to besiege Nineveh. They take over the city. And what you may or may not know about, Nine, about Nineveh is it was a massive city for the ancient world, 12, miles or of, um, 12 kilometers sorry, of um, walls around its perimeter. So it's pretty big in the ancient world. And running directly through the city was a river called the Husser River. And 
that river, at some point, we don't know, there's conflicting reports between the Babylonian records and the Greek records. Something happens to this river. Some say it was a, it was a flood because of rains that came. Others say that the Babylonians were clever enough to dam up the river and wait till it got really high up, high up with water and then release it all of a sudden to flood the city. And what happens one way or the other is this, this river floods and it destroys a large section of the wall. And when that happens, the fall of Nineveh is fit. It's over. Nineveh is, is done for. And it happens when Babylonian uh, king, that no one here, we normally, Nebuchadnezzar comes to power about seven years later. We know him from the book of Daniel. But this is a guy named Nabopolassar. He is the Babylonian king. And then a great name, Syaxares, the Median king, or the Median king. They're the two who come and destroy Nineveh. Now, in the midst of this, it was such a colossal fall that it's actually rung through history. Uh, a romantic British poet, little-known guy named Edwin Atherstone, wrote a poem called The Fall of Nineveh. And here's what he says. Lo, before the walls, unnumbered hosts in flaming panoply, chariots like fire and thunder bearing steeds. I hear the din of battle, like the waves of a tumultuous sea, great armies clash. In flame and smoke, the wondrous city sinks. Her walls are gone, her palaces are dust. The desert is around, around her and within. Like shadows have the mighty passed away. How came the ruin? So it was so shocking to see this city fall out of nowhere. They seemed un unstoppable. Now, when scholars say you don't find theology here, I think they're wrong because what you see all through the book of Nahum, and especially this description, is reversal. You see God intentionally coming and saying, I am the God of great reversals. I will turn the evil to good, and the good sometimes will be offset, and sometimes the good will suffer. And that is difficult for us to understand. But this is the God of the Bible, not just in the Bible, all through the Bible you're going to see this runs true. And so what we're going to do is we're going to see, as quickly as we can, the certainty of reversal, all rever you'll see what, what we mean, the tragedy of it, and then also the beauty of reversals. Okay? So let's walk through this passage with first the, the certainty of reversal. And let me start again in a weird place, a, a fairy tale called Hansel and Gretel. <laughs> So Hansel and Gretel, most people, well, most will know the story, but very few know the way it really ends in the Brothers Grimm. If you don't have a copy of the original Brothers Grimm stories, read them, please. It's cheap. They're probably online for free. Just don't read them to your children because they're terrifying. <laughs> this one isn't terrifying, though. So Hansel and Gretel, here's, you know more or less what happens, at least at the start. Um, there is poverty and famine in the land. So the parents, the, a husband and his, his, his second wife, a stepmother, decide they can't feed the whole family. So they decide to abandon, stepmother wants to do this, to abandon the children in the forest. So she takes them out of the forest, and they leave them there, and they abandon them. And eventually, the kids realize they're abandoned, they start walking around looking for some way to survive, and they stumble upon a house that is made of cake and bread with windows made of sugar. And they go in, and the house, of course, belongs to a witch, a wicked witch, an evil witch. And she takes them in and seems good at first, but the truth is she's just fattening them up to eat them. And that gets overturned. There's a reversal in that story. And uh, instead, the witch gets pushed into the very oven she was going to bake these children in. And then what most people know the story here. Now, most people would say, well, now what happens is uh, they go home and they're reunited and everything is okay. But that, the way that story ends, the way that we tell it to children, the way the TV shows show it, doesn't capture actually a reversal because if that's the way it ends we still have problems because the poverty still exists that drove them into being abandoned 
we still have a stepmother who is a horrible human being. So there's no actual reversal. But when you read the original, here's what happens. After they push the, the witch into the oven, they fill their pockets with the treasure they find there, specifically with pearls. Then they go, and they, as they're trying to find their way home, they come to a river. And they cross over the river on the back of a duck. And when they get home, they find the stepmother is dead, and their poverty is gone because they've got pearls. And so there's an actual reversal. Now this function, this idea, in not just in fairy tales, but in almost every human story ever told, that there is a reversal of fortunes, in good and bad, because notice, they went from being a somewhat happy and stable home to then being abandoned. There's a reversal of fortune, but then there's another one. And it's so common that it led Aristotle, you know Aristotle, the 4th century Greek philosopher, to say, one of the marks of a great story, and he goes through a lot, they still exist, he's, nobody has really improved on Aristotle here in his book Poetics, that one of the features of a great story, especially tragedies, is this idea of peripatia. Peripatia is, what he, is a Greek word, but it means a change of a situation into its opposite, a reversal. All great stories have peripatia, he says. And this is so common that it's not surprising he found it because thousands of years earlier, the Bible had it. Because if you look at the Bible, and we can't go through all of them because there's so many, but let's just touch on some of the reversals you see. And there's so many even in this one chapter we read. But you see, for instance, a creation that God makes is good, very good. And then it's reversed, it falls, and sin takes over. You move fast forward, because we have to. Joseph, which the kids studied at the, at the camp, a situation where he takes, he, it's bad. He is sold into slavery by his brothers. And then God reverses it and makes good out of it. They see, we see Pharaoh, who is this king who has the power, Egypt, the power play in the, in, in the region, has power, and it's overturned at the Red Sea. In fact, the Red Sea itself is a peripatia because it's closed and then it's reversed. It's opened to them. It moves on. We can see David doing this to Goliath where the evil is conquered by David and the switch. You see it when Assyria falls to Babylon. There's a reversal that's happening. You see it when Babylon comes and reverses Jerusalem's fortunes and beats that. You see it then in Esther. Oh my goodness, Esther is probably the clearest one where you have Esther and Haman. And if you don't know the Bible, forgive me, but if you do know the Bible, you know what I'm talking about. Esther, Haman, and Mordecai. The, it's right there, the reversal of fortunes constantly. It's built right into the story so obviously. And of course, the greatest reversal is Christ. He comes. And skipping over a lot, of course, what does he do? He takes death and he turns it into life. There's a reversal again. And so this sort of a thread is everywhere in Scripture, and it's woven, woven into this chapter. Specifically, God says, I'm coming, and I'm bringing a reversal to the way things are in the world. Assyria and Israel will both see their fortunes overturned. There's a reversal. And specifically, you see it with Assyria in verses 1 and 13. It's all through, but 1 and 13, the beginning and the end of the chapter. First thing he says is the scatterer has come up against you. Now, the scatterer has now come to the scatterers. Assyria, for the last 150 years, were the scatterers in the region. And now reversal is coming. No, now you're going to be scattered by Babylon. And why is this happening? Because God says, I am against you. God is against evil. First and foremost, he is against everything that contradicts his plan. And he says, because of that, not only is reversal coming, but it's certain. Reversal will always, always, always come to evil. Because God is against it. And so it's a certainty that it's going to come. And then for, for Israel, wonderful words in verse 2, it says, for the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. And you'll notice something. 
the Lord is. See that tense? Of course, when Nahum is writing, at the earliest, it's three years before the fall of Nineveh. At the latest, it might be 50 years before. So no matter what happens, when he says, I, am co- I have come, the scatterer has come to you, and he is restoring, well, he doesn't mean right away. So there's a time that Israel has to still endure being under the thumb of Assyria. And yet God says, and even now I am yet restoring it. Even now I am raising up Babylon. And so that means that, you're, that the reversal of all of our situations, whatever they are, and I'm not talking about health and wealth. Please don't think that. If you're poor now, don't think the reversal means God's going to have you win the lottery this year. That's not what we're doing here. That's not what he's saying. It, just because you're sick doesn't mean you're going to be healthy and you're going to get a magical cure. You may die sick and poor as many, many Christians have before. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying, though, is there will be a reversal because he is the God of reversals. And we're going to get to that at the last point more clearly about what he means. So, and this is, you know why this is important? Because that means even now, amidst your struggles, he is yet the God of reversals and he's working towards the reversal even now when you're in the midst of the hardship. And this is the sort of thing that when it comes to you and I, it allows us to live differently. The gospel should change the way we live regardless of our circumstances. And you see it really well done in about anywhere between 7 to 20 or 30 years after this story when Daniel and, and, and the book of Daniel is being played out. Because there's these three guys, and you all know them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they are faced, Nebuchadnezzar, the next Babylonian king, comes and says, listen, you have to worship me. You have to worship me. You have to worship me. Basically, just don't worship your gods. And these guys say, no, we're not going to do it. Even, if you, even though you're, you're threatening us with death, we're going to still worship our God, the God of Israel. And their response is so good that it ended up being used by Churchill and everything. Here's what they say in Daniel 3. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Because knowing that a reversal would come in this world or the next, whatever it is, because the reversal is certain, we ought to live differently. And so we don't bow before the idols of this world, not because they're not wonderfully enticing, because they are usually. That's why there's a need to resist them. But because we know the reversal will come, we're not swayed. You have cancer and it's not curable, you're not swayed to believe any other because you know this will, there will be a reversal at some point. I'm certain of it, and we'll see in a minute why. And so it changes the way we live. So there's a certainty of reversal. That's the first thing we see in this passage. The second thing we see, which is a little more bleak, is the tragedy. Of reversal. So the downside of a peripatia, this reversal, is that for the, the, the marginalized to be lifted up usually requires, because of human sin, that the lofty be brought down. And those who are haves in the world very seldom give up that power. One of the great failings of Marxism and socialism, I'm sorry if I don't want to be too political, but one of the great failings of Marxism, if there's a Marxist here at a church, well done, by the way, uh, unlikely, um, but one of the failings of that is Marxism doesn't take into account the depravity of human nature. It assumes that at some point, if we all have things in common, we'll just be happy to share, and we'll be happy to give up power. And if the, if the, if the examples of history have not shown that's crazy, I don't know what will. And so, oftentimes in this world, what happens is that for the reversal to happen, it's bloody, and it's broken, and it's ugly, and it's tragic. And here in this passage, first I'm going to show where the mini-reversals are happening. 
that, that feed this larger one. The larger reversal is Assyria is not going to be in power anymore. But that, the things, the steps that go into it are all through. And I'm only going to highlight a few because there's so many. First, chapter, verse 1, the scatterer will be scattered. There's a reversal. The aggressors, Assyria has not had to defend themselves for 150 years, but now they're defending themselves. So that role has been reversed. The military power has been reversed by the, the scarlet-clad armies of Babylon. Babylon wore red, and the Assyrians wore blue, sometimes purple. And so you see the wall all around them, the sea of red. So we see the military reversal. The safety and predictability of life living in Nineveh becomes confusion and rubble in verse 4. And so you see that happening. The officers, actually in the Hebrew it says the, the Assyrian officers that rush to the wall to defend it, it's, they're actually the majestic ones, meaning it's Assyria's best soldiers, their best possible soldiers. They run to the wall, but what do they do? As they run to the wall, they stumble. So they see reversal. Their once competent military is now faltering. Uh, the river that ran through, in fact, if you know the map, there's the Tigris River, there's all these tributaries running, there's pools and reservoirs, Nineveh was so powerful partly because it is never affected by famine and drought. It's very hard because there's so much water. And yet, what do we hear? The river becomes a source of their collapse when it floods. Ishtar, when it says that their mistress is dragged out, it's Ishtar. Ishtar is their, their goddess of fertility and war. And it was common in the ancient world that when you defeat a nation, you take their gods and you parade them out. Remember what the Philistines did with the ark. And so they take this goddess, and it says they strip her down, and not just her, but all of her servants. So the thing that was a source of pride and trust is now a source of shame and failure. So there's a reversal there. The pools and reservoirs, they're described as a pool that's draining away. So here they have this security in their pools that's draining away. They went to the walls to defend them in verse 5, I think it was. And in verse 10, now they're trembling there. It's actually a beautiful play on words. I wasn't going to say it, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, because in the passage, it says that they tremble like doves. Well, what's the name, what's the, what does Jonah mean? Dove. So what are you seeing in this wonderful connection to the book of Jonah is they wouldn't heed the word of the dove under Jonah, so now they tremble like doves. So you're seeing this wonderful play here. So it's the reversal again. And the place that was a lion's den, that bred young cubs to be vicious, have now become attacked, been attacked by the lions of Babylon. So that's just some. There's more in the, that passage. But you see reversal everywhere. Everything is being overturned. And what is worse than that, if it's possible, first let's say this. Sieges are brutal. When you besiege a nation, and they still happen today. There was one not too long ago in, in Aleppo. Uh, it happened, you know, the Syrian war and all these things. Um, the effects of, of, of siege are brutal, physically and emotionally. So physically, I mean, if you know history, you know them. Remember, remember I don't think many of you were alive. Um, uh, but you may have been. The, the siege of Leningrad in the Second World War. It lasted 872 days. People were eating wallpaper paste and leather. They were resorted to cannibalism. It was terrible, because what else could you do? It was physically just a nightmare for them. And even worse than that, says a Yale professor named Janine DiGiovanni, says that worse than that was this. What's far more damaging is the annihilation of the soul. And the, what she points out, when you, if you read more of her work, is, and this happens more recently, in Sarajevo, remember the 90s? Sarajevo was, was um, besieged in Aleppo recently. What happens is there's a psychological effect, and you see it on play here in the passage too. But what happens is you, um, you begin to see a, a, a shock. There's depression, 
fear, anticipation. What's going to happen? Am I going to be abused? Women start to worry, what's going to happen to my kids and to me? Men start to worry, but what's going to happen to my family if I go to the front? It's fear. It turns neighbors into enemies because now you're commonly fighting over the same resources because there's no food. So it builds suspicion and frustration and anger. It's incredibly damaging to the heart because you see your friends and family dying and starving and children dying. And the greatest, the, the, for the, from Aleppo and Sarajevo, the, all the, the folks who survived overwhelmingly said the greatest sense that they had when they came out was of being caged. And humans that are caged resort to animal-like behavior. And so it's incredibly painful. And in this passage, if you were just to underline, it's bad enough the physical things you see, but if you just underline the anguished emotionalism and spiritual uh, perspective, look at what it says. You see um, the words lamenting. The women are moaning, beating their breasts. They're crying out, stop, stop. The words rush and storm, meaning the confusion of the army inside. They're storming and whirling about in your city. The one safe city is now renegade. Your heart, their hearts melt. Their knees tremble. Anguish is in their loins. Their faces grow pale. And all of this horror of this passage culminates in what is, again, I think I said this before, the, one of the paradoxes of the book of Nahum is it's brutal, and yet it's the most beautiful poetry in the entire Bible which is maybe intentional. And when you see in verse uh, 10, there's these words, and in, every translation will say it differently in English. It'll say something to this effect. Desolation, or desolate, desolation and ruin. It may say a destruction, depending on your translation. But the Hebrew words, which you don't see, it's an alliteration that drones, and it shows a progress of how miserable it becomes. And it's buka, mebuka, mebulaka, over and over and over the droning of, look how terrible it is. Things are just falling away into desolation and ruin. And it's easy for us to read these things as history because we're so far removed from that sort of suffering. But this is one of the keys we have to get from this, is realizing that God doesn't rejoice in the death of anyone. He doesn't rejoice in it. Just be, it we sometimes think that justice is a source of, for exclusively rejoicing. It's not. And this is why there's this uh, terrible and wonderful and sad tradition amongst Israel and the Jews that uh, I think I may have said this to you before, but amongst the tradition, it's not in Scripture, but this is something they believe occurred, was, uh, or at least symbolically, is that after the, the Israelites stepped out of the Red Sea and the sea closed in and killed all the Egyptians, that they heard two loud thunderclaps. Nothing's in Scripture. This is just tradition. And those thunderclaps were tears of God falling to the ground because he knew that to free Israel, he meant he had to kill his Egyptians. And there's this paradox that justice is, is cause for rejoice for those who are struggling, but it should always be tinged with a degree of lament that it's even necessary. That we may not see it, but God is having to judge and destroy his own people, people he made for himself. Yes, they're renegade. Yes, they're rebels. But they're his children. Not the one not behaving like it. There is creation, at least. And um, so when you read this passage, you shouldn't just see it academically, as easy as it is to do that. Palmer Robertson, an Old Testament scholar, says this about the passage. You should chill at the shock of the first warning alert. You should jar at the pulsating rumble of approaching war chariots. You should panic in flight from the warriors who have broken through the city's last defenses. You watch through doleful eyes as the gleeful, sweaty victors sweep down to gather their spoils. And so every single time, here's, it's, a, it's strange, we pray the Lord's Prayer all the time. 
But when you and I pray, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, we are praying for justice and judgment. We're saying, let your kingdom come and sweep away the evil. But do you realize that some of the evil includes people you love? It's not that beautiful and simple as it seems. Justice is good. We should rejoice. But there's a sobriety that should accompany this, this passage. We should read it humbly. And this, now I'll move a little more lighthearted, because that's pretty dark, right? And this rhythm of our lives, all of us, I don't have to go specifics, all of our lives seem to cover this, don't they? Don't they seem to go from valley to peak and valley over and over? It seems like there's highs and lows, so much so it's made its way into popular culture, this rhythm. In fact, Frank Sinatra, I know this is going to get a lot lighter here for a second. Remember the song, That's Life? Any Sinatra fans? I'm riding high in April, but I'm shot down in May. But I know I'm going to change that tune when I'm back on top in June. And he says, I've been a puppet, a pauper, a pirate, a poet, a pawn, and a king. And this is human life. Everyone here has gone through these moments. And that rhythm of life, here's the part that's a little more sober about it. The rhythm of life is a rhythm because it's a rhythm that is, God, is God's song to us. Our lives are meant God is using at times, lifting us up and dropping us down, lifting us up and dropping us down, because he's hoping that you will do what you ought to do when you reach these highs and these lows, at both of them. When you are high, you ought to turn to God and thank him for his grace and mercy. Worship him. When you are low, you ought to turn to him and say, Lord, I cannot endure this without you. That's it. That's the point. The rhythms of life are all, as C.S. Lewis would say, God's megaphone to rouse a sleeping world. And we're, that's we're, one thing we should take away from here is that idea. And so, if you, and you know what? How you read this passage will tell me, well, I, I won't ask you, but should tell you a lot about what your faith is like. If you read it and you're, you're mixed with joy and sorrow, you're starting to understand the heart of God. If you read it and you see it only uh, dismiss it as history or as fantasy, then you're far from the heart of God. Not far enough that he can't reach you. Because it's far more than that. He is saying, do you see what happens to anyone who opposes God. It's not, he's not what he wants. He's calling all of us to turn. And that's where we move to now the beautiful, wonderful part of this passage, the beauty of reversal. So, what if we read this passage, instead of reading it like Nineveh, we read it like Israel. And let's just go, let me just see if this sounds familiar to you. There's a warning. But then there's also a promise that, yes, you've gone astray, but I have a promise, I will save my people. And I'm going to do it by sending an agent into the world, Babylon in this case, but he's going to send an agent into the world to rescue his people. And their job is to go and to confront the evil in the world and to destroy it, to break down its stronghold, to plunder its city, and then to set his people free. And then when they are free, they are to then turn and worship him. Now, does this sound anything at all like this story? that there's warnings and promises all through the Bible. And then he says, I'm going to send an agent, and he's going to come, and on your behalf, he's going to confront the evil, and he's going to conquer it, and he's going to plunder it. This is what the ancient church called the harrowing or the harrowing of hell. So you don't see it tons in Scripture. The idea being that when Christ dies on the cross, he goes, and what he does is he plunders hell. He goes in and he drags out their keys and their power and everything they have over humanity, and he robs it. He plunders the enemy. And when he does that, he comes out and wins our peace and our freedom so that we may worship him. So what you're seeing here, even in this dark, dismal part of, this, of the Bible, is an echo of the gospel. 
And the gospel is very, is, in some ways, it's very simple. Uh, simple, sorry. It tells us that suffering is robbed of its power and that restoration is certain for you. Certain. Think about the disciples. After Christ dies, they are hopeless in, their, in, the, in the upper room and they're weeping and they're hiding because they think the light of the world has gone out. They think the hope is actually a hoax, as I heard one pastor call it. And so they're weeping. And what happens? Peripatia. Jesus is risen. There's a reversal, an undoing of everything. And when you look at now, let's turn back to Hansel and Gretel here for a second. Hansel, if you're a German, sorry, I'm called Hansel. How does it end? I explained the ending to you, but now understand this. I can say with pretty good confidence that I've never read a, Grimm, a Brothers Grimm fairy tale that isn't intentionally trying to point you to the gospel. And I'm pretty sure, I'm not an expert, that that was their, part of their intent, was to help you see the gospel. And think about what happens. We won't do the whole story. When the evil is defeated, the witch is defeated, what do they do? They stuff their pockets with pearls. What are pearls in the, in the Bible? The kingdom, salvation. So they plunder evil by stuffing their pockets with it. They then go and try to look for a way home. And they get to a river. If you know anything about symbolism in rivers, especially Greek in the river Styx, you go to a river as one person. And when you cross it, you're a different person. There's transformation over water. Every book you've ever read, that's what happens. Whenever they cross a body of water, look and ask, what's being transformed? And they do it. Now, how do they, how do, they do it? On the back of a duck. Seems juvenile, but it's not. Because this time, creation is not running from humanity. But now that evil has been defeated, and they're in the kingdom, they have salvation, the duck says, yeah, come on. And there's partnership here. There's healing in there. And when they get across, and they hear that evil has been defeated, and the stepmother is dead, and the father embraces them, they now are actually free, because they don't have to ever fear about being abandoned again, because they have the pearls, the kingdom. And so... Even in this old story, we see the gospel here of a reversal and how it works in our hearts. And so, Christians, first of all, take heart. You're going to face trials in this world, but you have one who has overcome the trials. And I, I, I won't be over-emotional about it, but there's people here who are struggling. I know some of you are struggling, and some I don't know are struggling. And it's very easy to think that all this stuff you hear on Sundays is fooey. Because you think, if God is good, would I be suffering? And I understand that but you need to now cling to faith and say, there is a reversal coming at some point, and I will endure and live faithfully through the struggle with the help of your family, with the Spirit, with prayer, with the Scripture, and will do that to bring glory to God because a reversal is certain and it's coming. If you're a skeptic, I say, listen, doesn't matter what you do, you're going to struggle in this world. Rejecting Christ will not change the fact that your life may be miserable. It won't heal your relationships. Accepting Him won't necessarily heal everything there. But what it does say is there's going to be resolution. And what the gospel promises, and this is where I literally crows, is, is this, there's this wonderful scene at the end of Lord of the Rings, and it's so much, again, Christian imagery there. At the end of Lord of the Rings, I think the hero of the book, and I think Tolkien would agree, and he's dead, so I can say that without reprisal, is the hero of the story is not Frodo, it's Sam. It's the, it's the brother, it's the friend of Frodo. If you don't know the story, Frodo is tasked with taking the ring of power to a, to a volcano to have it destroyed. But it's too much for him. It's too evil. It's weighing him down. So his friend Sam goes with him. And when Sam goes with him, he eventually has to carry the ring for a short time. And it shows his strength that he's able to give up the ring, where no one else seems to be able to, and give it back to Frodo to bear it. He helps him, even carries him up the mountain. And eventually he passes out and he's out cold. And he wakes afterwards when everything is better. 
And when he wakes up, he sees Gandalf, the wizard he thought was dead for most of the movie. Or book, sorry. This, I don't think this part's even in the, in the movie. And here is that interaction. But Sam lay back, and he stared with open mouth, and for a moment, between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Here's key. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music, or like water in a parched land. And he listened to the, listened, sorry, and as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sounds of merriment for days upon days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. But he himself burst into tears. Then, as a sweet rain will pass down a wind of, a wind of spring, and the sun will shine out, out the clearer, his tears ceased, and his laughter welled up, and, laugh, and laughing he sprang from his bed. And this is the hope of reversal. You and I, we don't know when the shadow is going to pass in our lives sometimes. But what the Bible promises, that no other worldview promises, Eastern religions will tell you, you're going to screw up this life, you better come back as a different thing and try to fix it until you get it right. You have to get it right. Atheism will tell you there's no meaning, there's no hope, there's no healing, there's no justice. Just suck it up, get used to it. Christianity alone says there is reversal. Always reversal. Always hope for those who trust in God because he cares enough to have come and paid the price for that reversal. So one day, if it's not now, though you should do it now too, I think, too, hopefully, but at some point we will laugh like Sam. We'll rejoice because we'll see all the sad things coming untrue. Whatever that means, I don't know what it means. I just know that's what the scripture points to. As C.S. Lewis says, all the pages of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it won't be this way forever. And that's the hope of the gospel. Turn to him now while you can. Christians, let's celebrate. Let's rejoice. I don't know what song they're going to play next. I probably should. But let's rejoice in this king that we have. Let's pray. 